Welcome back to the Career Therapy Podcast, where we explore the emotional side of work. By talking to experts in the field, we strive to better understand why some people succeed and others struggle when it comes to building a fulfilling career. My name is Martin McGovern, founder and lead coach at Career Therapy, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Please welcome Sean Grover to the podcast. Sean Grover is an LCSW psychotherapist and author with over 25 years experience. He's an inspiring speaker and designer of award-winning youth programs. He's appeared on over 150 podcasts and radio shows and leads one of the largest group therapy practices in the United States, in addition to monthly workshops in clinics, medical centers, youth organizations, and schools. Sean's parenting book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again, was named Best New Nonfiction from Publishers Weekly and was included on the New York Times recommended reading list for parents. His blog has gathered over 5 million reads, and he has even been featured as a guest on the Today Show. In today's convo, we talk about the differences between lifestyle fatigue and chronic depression when it comes to your job search, how to learn to trust yourself in order to better connect with your boss and coworkers, and how to build a healthy sense of self that feeds our many internal identities, both professionally, personally, and even romantically. Thank you for stopping by the Career Therapy Podcast and tuning into this episode. If you enjoy the conversation, please share with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sean Grover. All right, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I came across your article on psychology today and was just absolutely, you know, I it, it, it hit a nerve a little bit because so many of my clients are either feeling depressed or feeling extremely exhausted and just kind of, uh, you know, lacking in motivation, let's say. Um, and you, you got into some nuance with this topic that I think is incredibly helpful for the job search and just for life and, and, and everything. And so I'd love to just kind of kick things off um, and have you give a little bit of a background on yourself and the type of work you do and the type of people that you work with. And then we can get into the, the nuts and bolts of, of the topic here today. Great. Okay. Thank you, Martin. And thank you for having me here. I'm a psychotherapist, uh, 27 years, and actually I'm a group therapist. So I work with groups of people. I have one of the largest group therapy practices in the United States. And people come to me to work on relationships, professional relationships, personal relationships, friendships, because for me, that's where people tend to uh, go off the tracks. They can have a lot of self-knowledge. They can understand their history. They could tell you all their psychological underpinnings, but they get in a relationship and suddenly they become a different person. They get anxious. They get frightened. They get, uh, and how do they deal with the anxiety? Maybe they get ag aggressive. Maybe they uh, space out and get numb. <clears throat> so uh, in group therapy, we're really looking on enhancing and improving communication, authenticity, boundary setting. So people feel free with those structures in a relationship. You feel much more free to be yourself. I love that, especially when it comes to the boundary setting. That's a big thing that we talk about a lot in, uh, in this podcast and in the work I do as well. So when it comes to um, our topic here today of lifestyle fatigue, I want to just kind of start with, you know, the, 
the core thing that I hear in every group session that I do as well, which is I'm out of motivation. How do I get motivation back? And how do I get more energy? There's so many things that I want to get done, but I just feel exhausted, maybe even chronically exhausted. And so uh, in your work, in, in the group stuff that you're doing and the relationships that you're helping people with, where does this exhaustion sort of stem from? What do you see as like the main drivers behind the the feelings of tiredness that people are experiencing? Well, I think this is the age of fatigue. Hmm. I think it started with the pandemic and it's still going on. Uh, people may like their lives or being, you know, in a good relationships or good careers or maybe in school, but not a day goes by when in my office, someone says, I am so tired, just on, on and on groups uh, and people are trying to put their finger on it. A, a lot of people may confuse it with um, what they call high functioning depression, which is uh, a kind of chronic low grade depression. Lifestyle fatigue is different because it is, is a symptom of your lifestyle. And if we look at the pandemic, and the changes that we experience is where we're couch bound, we're locked indoors, we don't see people. Um, you can build a, a life that is, is designed for fatigue and depression. Uh, so really for me, lifestyle uh, fatigue comes down to self-neglect and burnout. Self-neglect and burnout, wow. And so when it comes to that high functioning depression piece, uh, this I think is really, um, it's, it's almost kind of in the pop culture a little bit too right now. Um, so it's cool that you're writing about this and sharing these things because I just came across a video on YouTube this week, uh, about there was this YouTube channel that was very nerdy. They like make Iron Man, realistic Iron Man stuff where they can like do flying and whatever. And the mm -hmm. guy who runs that channel, um, this week just announced that they are, completely shifting the way that they do things because he's been depressed for the past 15 years of building that YouTube channel. And one of the things that he was doing with his depression, because he was depressed even before he started it, but he's almost started doing YouTube in order to give himself something to distract himself from the depression. And he would work 80 to hundred hours a week on it. And, you know, after 15 years, it catches up with you. Right. And so I think one of the things that I'm seeing so much in the clients that I work with is that they, Maybe they even have this lifestyle that you're talking about where they're kind of fostering lifestyle fatigue, but then they're also comparing themselves to these, what look like incredibly successful stories of people, you know, crushing it in life, let's say, but what you don't see until they put out a video like that 15 years later is what's behind that. And what are your thoughts about how... What are your thoughts about how success or the the outlook of outward view of success and the inward sort of anxieties and depressions that people have? Uh, it almost makes me think that like a lot of what we perceive as success is actually just coping strategies for different mm -hmm. emotional issues. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are around that. Boy, uh, <clears throat> Martin, you're bringing up something really, really complicated because uh, we may live in a society that rewards this kind of mania. Uh, so you can do something out of a sense of passion. You can do something out of a sense of mission. This is like the fuel. But if there isn't balance, then you're definitely on the path toward burnout. So uh, 
it often happens. Uh, couples, let's say, uh, I knew a couple that bought a house, and for for at least five to ten years, they were rebuilding this old house there. All they ever talked about was this house and the plumbing and this. And then they finished the house and the whole time he was having an affair. Oh my God. And so <laughs> the house was finished and they got divorced. So the house, uh, just like maybe having a child or launching an, another new business is a way of distracting you from some fundamental imbalance. I'm not gonna think about that now, so I'm gonna focus on this. But what happens is that's like saying, well, it's just a tiny bit of cancer. I'm not gonna pay attention to that. I'm not gonna worry about that. You know, and one of the um, one of the great uh, I read this obituary of this. It's a too long a story, but this man was number one in his field for over 30 years. No one could come close to what he achieved. And in his obituary, they asked him, what did it feel like to be number one your whole life? And he said, well, it's like being a mountain climber. And you finally climb Mount Everest and you get to the top. And you know what you find? Ice. <laughs> so that was a that was a symbolic of his life. He had made a lot of enemies along the way. He had gotten through a lot of divorces. Maybe his kids weren't talking to him at some point. Uh, maybe he was alone toward the end. But he told that story late in life. So the that is an, a perfect example of someone who single mindedly pursues an objective at the complete neglect of other parts of his life, of his relationships, uh, his friendships. Uh, and um, for me, the lifestyle fatigue, I always wanna know what patients I'm working with, are you just consuming media or are you creating something? Because if we sit just consuming, 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 and we're not generating our own creativity uh, if we don't have our own hobbies or passions, music or art, going to the theater, whatever it is, hiking. If we're not feeding all parts of our personality, there is going to be a breakdown eventually. Just like any piece of machinery, machinery without uh, service is going to break down. The, the whole unit needs service, not just the tires or just the oil. And so... Uh, single-mindedly pursuing, there's a Buddhist uh, phrase that comes to mind, uh, single-mindedly pursuing earthly desires is the fire that destroys our house. And if you just pursue this one gratifying, gratifying experience, uh, you're gonna ignore other parts of your life. Eventually you'll self-destruct. So if we were to break that down, all the different parts, um, how would you maybe categorize the uh, the scope of different things that people should be thinking about, right? Because, you know, if we just go online and listen to the motivation stuff, which a lot of people do when they're mm -hmm. feeling tired and burnt out, they go watch Gary Vaynerchuk or something. And, uh, you know, then they get told if you're not working 90 to 100 hours a week, well, then why are you even complaining and all these different things, right? Which makes them go, okay, well, mm -hmm. now I need to go work 100 hours a week on my job search, which sounds like the most awful way to spend your life, <laughs> if you ask me. And uh, and so the, and then we do put all these other things on the back burner. There's kind of two ways this goes. You spend all your time on one thing and neglect the rest, or you try to do all of the things to the maximum amount. And then that I, I have a client that's doing that and she's very stressed out where she's like, 
I want to spend time with my friends. I want to do the job search. I want to be in shape. I want to do all these things. And now she's, you know, she's finding the fatigue in trying to maximize everything. So what are the different areas if we were to categorize them? Like what are maybe the different categories of things to be trying to balance? And then how can we approach that in a healthy way? So this idea that you have to work, uh, could you shoot me the last part of that question? Yeah. So if how there's, we kind of mentioned that there's a, a balance that we have to have with the different parts of mm -hmm. our life. Let's, let's start by focusing in on what are the maybe different categories that we should be trying to balance? So if someone is hyper-focused just on work right now and neglecting the rest, what are the different areas that they should start opening themselves up to or bringing back into the fold? Right. Okay. Well, I like to cycle through. Uh, I have this kind of a mindset and how I was trained by the, uh, Dr. Lou Ormont, who was one of pioneers in uh, group therapy in the United States. He started his first group therapy practice in 1950 when people didn't even know that was what that was. Um, he always wanted everyone who studied with him to have a very well-rounded life. So that meant uh, for me, cycling through, uh, I go to the theater uh, for that kind of stimulation. I may go to a gallery for another kind of stimulation. I may go to a dance performance or a concert. I may uh, go for a hike. I'll often think like, well, what's the last thing I did? And I'm thinking about that now, I went to the theater. And I've been sort of craving going to a concert now. So I'm going to plan a concert that I'm going to attend. So you begin to, you know, really feed your senses in that way. Uh, recently, I took a vacation up in Quebec and my daughter is a real foodie. And she brought us on a food tour, which I had never done. So I'm eating things like, oh, I didn't want to tell you what I ate, but, <laughs> but it was so exciting. You know, everything was new. And so we'd finish a meal and we'd be walking back to our, or Airbnb, and we'd be so excited, you know, what, what can we try next? You know, I, I'm not like a blood sausage guy, or I can't even remember this one dish we had, but it, it, it would, the idea of trying new things, exploring new things, uh, putting that on your checklist, addition to like coming up with you, meeting your goals for your business. What about your goals for your soul? You know, what about your goals for feeding all parts of your psyche? You know, uh, if I don't go to a gallery and stare at a painting every now and then, part of me starts to, to numb out, you know? And if you work so hard, single-mindedly single pursuing something, of course you're gonna lead to burnout, but, and this is the thing you really about, you begin to resent or even dislike the thing you're doing because the sacrifices are too great. So a lot of musicians, when I work with teenagers and they run, they go off to a conservatory to study music, they drop out a year later because it became, you know, their love became a hardship, you know? Uh, so if you're uh, uh, pursuing something single-mindedly and without feeding all parts of your personality, you will begin to uh, dislike what you do. And I know if I overwork, I love uh, going into the office and working with people, but if I work 10, 12 hours a day, I'm going to begin to dislike it. And my mood's going to be affected. Uh, it's going to affect my relationships. Maybe I would get impatient. Maybe I get irritable easily. 
Uh, these are things I'm not willing to sacrifice at the altar of uh, goals. I mean, if I achieve all these great goals and this people come to my office who are successful politicians, we've seen this, right? Or, or lawyers or TV personalities and their personal lives are a disaster. And I would not trade all that celebrity or money or whatever they have at the cost of my, my family or my relationships. I'm so glad you put that out there because I think one of the things um, that I was talking about in a group call the other day, and we celebrity, I think is just the easiest one because everyone knows who like a Kim Kardashian is or something like that. Um, and we can all visualize it or a Johnny Depp we that was put on, you know, literally on trial recently. And um, we we can look at these things and almost um, lose a sense of empathy for it because we're like, well, they're so successful. They're so rich. They're so whatever. And every time I watch one of those things happen in the media, it just kind of, it hits me that like, these are just people, right? These are not anything other than just like any other person. They just got really, really good at one thing. I think I heard a quote somewhere. It was a, you know, a celebrity is just someone who got really good at a single thing at the expense of everything else. And to your point with politicians and everything, I think it's a very similar way. Um, but we can also sometimes get lost in like the celebrity piece of it and forget that this is also how a lot of just day to day people that we interact with are as well. And so you see someone who's a VP or a CEO or whatever the thing might be. And I see this all the time in my practice where people are like, um, literally the other day, someone said, I wish I could be like that person. I wish I could do that thing. I wish I could be a VP or be the personality that is a VP. Right. And then mm -hmm. we broke down a lot of different elements of their personality and the things that make them tick and what they like. And we found that like, even if they could get to that level, even if they had enough discipline to force themselves to get to that point, they would be mm -hmm. so miserable <laughs> in that role because mm -hmm. they don't like management mm -hmm. and they don't like X number of other things. And so um, trying to realize that the outward appearance is not the same as the inward reality. And and maybe people in our, like your profession and in, even in coaching to a lesser degree, uh, we kind of see that all the time. But I think a, a normal, you know, every day, someone who's trying to work up the ladder doesn't necessarily see that. And so when they compare themselves to this, this sort of false ideal, let's call it, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. we can get a little bit exhausted from that, right? And so one of the questions that a client asked me in a group call recently was, what should I expect my every day to be? Like, what should I expect to feel when I wake up each day, the internet is telling me that my head should pop off the pillow and I should be excited and I should be doing work without coffee and I shouldn't need anything other than this passion to drive me. Um, and we got into like a really long conversation about it, but I'd love to pose that question to you. What, what is a normal experience? If someone were to actually spend the time to bring in these elements, to feed their soul in the way the goals for your soul and to, you know, feed their senses in the way that you're talking about, bring in those new experiences and allow themselves to have a balanced life that, you know, maybe, maybe the people with the most balanced lives, we never even hear from because they're just quietly living wonderful lives and they're not putting it on social media. What should that, what would that look like in your opinion? Or what do you see when someone gets to that healthy point? What is a day-to-day -day 
What's a good expectation for the day-to-day of our lives? I know it's a very big question, but I'm curious where you take it. Mm. Well, I think for me, uh, you know, I have a mindfulness practice. Uh, I've had it for 33 years. I, every morning it's one solid hour of uh, this uh, meditation followed by some studying. During that time, uh, I'm often reflecting on my choices. Uh, I may think about what, what's on the agenda for today. I may think about, uh, you know, try things like I had to return a phone call or something, but generally I'm always asking, you know, is this the life I want to be living? Just the life I want. I, and, and you can't wait. Happiness is not the absence of problems or challenges. It's, it's the way in which we, uh, face them. You know, so you can be struggling and happy or you could win and be miserable, you know? So uh, I think the, the danger is, you know, in a capitalist society that who, you know, is happiness having more accumulating things. Uh, there's this uh, idea of uh, what they call a, a transient happiness. These are things that like can expire very quickly and then absolute happiness, which is based on things that can't be taken away. So if I ask someone in therapy, tell me a happy memory from a childhood, I'm never going to hear about presence. I, I never, someone never says, oh, I got this great gift when I was seven. In fact, they don't even remember. But will they remember are the esteem building happiness, the things that fed their identity, like, oh, I wrote this poem and I read it in front of the class. Or, oh, I hit this home run. Something that that is with them the rest of their life. If your happiness or your sense of self is built on these transient ideas, you're always on a roller coaster. That's like getting up every day and buying a lottery ticket. Am I going to be happy or sad? Happy or sad? Am I going to win or lose? These extreme thinking. Uh, and also, by the way, celebrity is all performance. Mm-hmm. It's performance. You know. So I know what the mentors I've had in my life that I got to know them really well. And what I admired most is their relationship with their children, their relationship with their wife, how they walked through the world. There's one of my teachers who uh, is approaching 90 and I, I, I spotted him on the street and the way he was walking down the street, he was, and uh, I just thought, wow, look, he's, this guy is like enjoying walking down the street. It's a street he lived on, I, I think for 60 years. And he's, He's saying hello to people. And, and so for me, that, that matters more than the kind of car he drives or where he lives. You know, so the spirit, uh, the life condition of the person for me determines the happiness, not the mechanics. So you have to put side, a time side for self-reflection, for a mindfulness practice. Now, people, this always kills me. People do yoga, right? And what do they do in the yoga? they become competitive. So now they're competing with someone next to them on how they can stretch, or they're going and buying $150, $300 yoga. They, they turn even meditation into a capitalistic tool of competition. You know, so we, we have to make room for really the hard questions, the hard questions, uh, and looking at all parts of the person, not just their career. I absolutely love it because it's. I, I remember when I first came across um, probably one of the first times that I was like really considering meditating. It was 
I think from a Tim Ferriss book, you know, back in my early twenties. Right. And I was sitting there and I'm like, it was all framed in how can meditation improve your business? How can meditation make you money? How can <laughs> it's like, and, and one of the fun quotes that, you know, I heard back then was like, if you're having trouble meditating, it probably means that you need to meditate more. And so then it's like, Oh yeah, I gotta, I gotta meditate even more then. And it's like, well, if you're having trouble meditating, it's like, maybe you need to reflect, and not just try to force yes. yourself to do more. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I just wrote this article, Psychology Today, called Why Meditation Doesn't Work for Everyone. Mm. And just before they published it, I said to my daughter, oh, I'm going to get a lot of hate mail. And within 30 minutes, <laughs> the hate mail started pouring in because this idea of med- there are some people that cannot meditate because of many, many conditions. Uh, so meditation doesn't have to be sitting it can be walking, it can be hiking, it, even gardening can be a form of meditation, like opening up how we define these things. But if we're gonna take uh, a mindfulness practice and run it through the capitalistic machine, yeah, I'm gonna meditate on how to make more money, uh, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and that there's even place for that, but that can't be, Yeah, I mean, an example of this the other day, during my practice, my morning practice, I kept thinking of this old friend that I had a falling out with. We hadn't spoken in years, we had a big fight. And I thought, well, if I'm really coaching people or uh, providing therapy to people, then I, I have to walk the walk. Mm-hmm. So I, I picked up the phone later that day, I called him and we met that weekend and we sat on a bench in Central Park. We spoke for three hours and it was glorious. That came out of holding myself accountable for uh, my lifestyle and my relationships. Now it's very easy to be angry with someone or blame him. And, and deep down, I, I'm still kind of angry with them, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know, you have a friendship since you're 19, it's, it's not gonna die on a single mistake. So, but uh, that kind of reflection and real accountability is essential to live a grounded and focused life. That's, that's balanced, that's balanced. Yeah. And I, it, it kind of, the way you phrase that sort of hits me with this idea of like the right activity with the wrong intention can lead to a lot of burnout, a lot of stress. It can almost create more friction. Um, and I'm curious when it comes to like, obviously there's a lot of reflection and mindfulness that needs to go into this stuff. But when it comes to trying to do all these things, I think the the ultimate goal most people that I'm working with are trying to get to even if what they're articulating is like, oh, I want more money or I want a better job or I just want to get out of this toxic environment or whatever the thing might be, you know, I'll work with someone for three months to find a new job. And then they'll be like, I think I don't want to change jobs. I'm just having like a midlife crisis. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I knew that two months ago, but you know, I (laughs) needed you to come to that realization. And, uh, and I find that a lot of it is um, it's identity work, right? And I think even identity kind of gets put into this category of the right activity, like reflecting on who we are and trying to see where we can improve everything you talked about in your mindfulness practice. But that also gets warped in this machine into, I need to find my static identity. I need to find the identity that I can sell to people, that I can turn into a persona, that I can, that never changes and never waffles and never wavers. And I can be the exact same in every situation, no matter who I'm talking to or what I'm doing. It's, it's almost like we're being encouraged to create a 
a caricature of ourselves and then live up yes. to it. And I'm curious, like, yes. what, how do you view the reality of identity in life and how it changes and maybe morphs over time? Well, you're saying I'm, yeah, <laughs> this is a big, this is a big question. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a woman who came into one of my groups many years ago and she was a sort of a celebrity. Uh, and she wore these really big chunky glasses and she, uh, you know, I guess with uh, YouTube or any of these services, you can splice together uh, things like, so she always looked sharp and crisp and funny and this and that. She joined one of my groups. She was a nightmare. Mm. She was rude. She interrupted people. She was a terrible listener. I think, honestly, I don't think she made it three sessions. Wow. Because someone said to their in group and one of the rules of group is that, you know, you have to put your thoughts and feelings into words uh, and and without, you know, attacking or any people, but also being honest. So someone it kept coming up. People found her very inauthentic and very manipulative. It turns out as successful as she was, she didn't have any real close relationships, either uh, personally or romantically. So the more they pointed out these uh, vacancies in her brand, if we're going to call it that, the less she could tolerate it. So she became enraged and just fled. Uh, so that's, that's the danger. Identity uh, based on celebrity or based on brand, it's, uh, it can be a little inhuman, you know, like a, like a, a photoshopped uh, picture of someone's body and, uh, you know, a doctor or a yogi will look and say, like, that's impossible. That the human body can't look that way. Mm. Or if it does, it's very unhealthy. But yet these are the images that are being sold to us. Uh, so um, I, I, I'm, you know, the branding and all that said, that's great. Make more money. That's great. For what? Mm-hmm. Why? Someone said to me a few weeks ago, he's like, I really want to get married and have kids. I said, why? He said, what do you mean? Why? I said, well, why do you want to do this? He said, cause I want to, I said, but shouldn't you think about why? And he, so we get into this thing of like cultural peer pressure uh, that we have to have certain things without even considering, do I actually need this? Uh, or is this what I really want? Cause boy, I work with lots of families and there are people out there, honestly, should never have had children. Mm -hmm. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, and then they pay me a lot of money to kind of clean up the mess. Uh, so uh, the identity is, is, it is a journey. Uh, but like we've been saying, it has to come. You have to feed all parts of your identity, not just your career. When someone comes to you and says, you know, I want to do this thing and you go, why? And their answer is because mm -hmm. where do you take, where could they take things or where do you take things from there? Because I see that a lot in my practice too, where someone will come to me and the first thing they'll say is I need a new job. And you know, I, I'm a career coach. So of course I'm going to entertain that <laughs> and help them with that if that's what they want. But I do tend to find, you know, especially the more as I get trained in psychotherapy and things like that, the more and more I'm like, let's actually sit on that question longer before just jumping into like applying for things. Right. And I'm curious, like, have you seen people, um, hopefully, but have you seen people who 
they'll put a big statement out there and you'll maybe push back on them. How do they actually respond to that pushback? Um, what are maybe some mm -hmm. examples of people who responded to that pushback in a positive way and maybe even changed their mind? Or what are some maybe examples of people who like were stubborn and didn't change it? And, and how did that go? I'm curious if you have any stories around um, sure. people, being able, sure. people being able to change how they think. Well, I think the challenge in therapy or working with people is that I can't be the same therapist with everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, some people need more me to be more assertive. Some people need me to be more gentle and kind. And some people, if there are bullies, need me to confront them really directly. You know, I, I'm thinking of a man, I was, uh, couples counseling is very complicated. I'm not a fan and people call me, I want to be a couple, do couples therapy. I say, great, find someone else. <laughs> um, um, but this man was awful to his wife. Awful. I just, the things he would say to her, body shaming and all this stuff. This is about 25 years ago before that body shaming was even a term. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found myself getting more and more enraged. And uh, I blew up in the session at him. And he, I, I told him, I, the, you know, my, uh, I had the biggest issue in his marriage for me is why on earth she would stay with someone like him. I told him he was uh, abusive, his grotesque, he was a bully, and he should be ashamed of himself. Mm. If he thinks he has problems in the marriage, he needs to take a look in the mirror first. And I was shaking with rage. And, and he turned bright red and he was, he was like a boxer. He, I thought he was going to take a swipe at me and they left. And I thought, well, okay, I get fired for these kind of outbursts early in my career. I'm better now. Uh, but when you see some, in, some incredible injustice unfolding in front of you as a therapist, sometimes it's very hard for me to remain neutral. So he called me about a week or two later and he wanted to meet alone. I thought, oh, great. Okay. And, uh, he said, no one's ever spoken to me that way in my life. And then we had a talk. He stayed with me for years, one-on-one. -on -one. I put him in a men's group and we focused on how he related and, and how he was so abused as a, as a child. He wasn't even aware of... Uh, I mean, and I'm not talking about verbal abuse. I'm talking his father beating his mother. So all these things were stored behind this persona. And once we got to it, uh, and once you really listen, you know, listen to your depression, listen to your anxiety. It's trying to tell you something. Someone comes in and says, uh, I'm depressed. I, I'm having trouble getting through the day. I said, well, what's going on in your life? My mother just died after a long illness. I said, well, of course you're what yeah and she said but i don't want to feel this way do you prescribe antidepressants and I, I, it's madness uncomfortable feelings serve a purpose they're not there to be medicated away or to be denied or buried or repressed you know if you're working with a therapist that means you have to have the courage to uh explore parts of yourself that you would necessarily turn away from Another story about I worked with a, a man many years ago who was a soldier in the Israel in the Israeli army, very hard man, very hard man. But I, I uh, oh, he was a tough case. He was in a group with me, and at one point I saw an opening 
he got sort of choked up. He started telling memory of his childhood in Israel. And I said to him, do you have a special place you went to as a child? And I, he said, yes, I, I had. And I said, take me there right now. What would I see? Where would we go? What is, what, what, what's, what is it shaped like? What does it smell like? And he said, oh, you know, I used to go, and he described how he would go somewhere to hide, to cry, because he was so ashamed of crying in front of his father. And in that moment, he started to cry so hard. It was like this eruption. That moment, and this often happens in group therapy, when you sort of this pivot, you touch on this pivotal moment where someone made a choice to shut down parts of themselves. I can tell you that, man, that breakdown in therapy that day changed his life. And there are moments like that very often where I will cry with a patient. I'd have to be a monster not to cry with some of these people. Mm -hmm. But for someone who's always felt alone in their pain, to have someone sitting beside them and, and validating it is also a way of feeding their identity. Their feelings are valid. That memory is awful. No wonder you wanted to get rid of it. So uh, a lot of identity can be built around these repressions of feeling. And then we get this sort of inauthentic, tense uh, person that feels like hard to reach, just hard to reach. Those defenses kind of become like a muscle that doesn't have enough uh, blood or flexibility, actually becomes bone at some point. You know, it begins to calcify, you know, so examining those parts of ourselves requires, you know, it's very courageous to sit down to work in group therapy, work with a a skilled therapist to examine parts of you that are probably, you know, you could change careers, you could change cities, you can change partners, and you're taking the same script with you. I got, I've seen that so often, you know, your dream is to have a, house and a family and live in the suburbs. And then years later, I get a call. I have a house and a family and live in the suburbs. And I'm trying to decide if I should hang myself in the garage or the attic, you know? So I, I, uh, obviously we haven't dealt with the core issue. Yeah. Sorry, I was really a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, that was amazing. I appreciate you sharing those stories so much. Cause I mean, that is, that is unfortunately what I see in my work as well. And it's one of the reasons I'm getting trained to become a therapist because um, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here just talking to people about their careers and on a Monday morning, someone will open up about suicidal thoughts. And I'm like, well, I'm not trained for that. So maybe I need to go some training. Right. And, uh, and it is, it is the reason that I'm so excited to chat with you about these things, because, um, we think it's just, I need to update my resume. We think it's just, I need to change jobs. We think it's just, I need to get away from this manager, but really it's, a combination of so many different things. It could be those things and much, much deeper things. And I like how you put that. It's we have to listen to our depression and our anxiety, or even if we're not at pure depression or chronic depression, we need to listen to our lifestyle fatigue um, symptoms. Yes, And and we really do need to like have the courage to reach out for help, to examine these things, to reflect on these things and to share these things. And I give so much um, respect to, you know, that person for even making it to counseling in the first place in that story that you told, right? Um, 
to put himself in a situation where someone like you could confront him because uh, it could have very easily never even gotten to that stage, right? Let alone to the stage that you were able to get to with it. And so this is this is exactly what I hope people who are listening can reflect on and build on and, and see. And then the question becomes like, we want to do this for ourselves, but we also have to realize that other people are on their own journey and in their own places mm -hmm. and dealing with their That's own right. traumas. And so, That's you know, right. I had someone who um, they got a job and it paid really well and they were so excited. They've never been paid this much in their entire life. First person in their family to ever make this much money. They get the job six months in, they find out another coworker makes more money than them and it creates a whole lot of you know, emotional responses. And then the company has these issues and there's a lot of things in corporate America that I think we sort of touched on some of this already, but there's a lot of fakeness that has to happen in order for people to like get through the day. Um, and, you know, if you have to lay someone off, you still have to put on a, 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 a kind face to do that. And I think right. it creates this odd split that people mm -hmm. feel, but they don't know how to articulate mm -hmm. where they go. Yes. I know what this person is like, trying to be like what they're doing is mean, but how they're saying it is nice. And it's an odd twisted kind of feeling that you get yeah. from it. Go I ahead. think they call yeah. that cognitive, cognitive dissonance. Mm, yes. You know, like you're the words do not match the feelings, you know? So uh, as instinctual as sort of the animal part of ourselves says, don't trust this person. Don't trust this person. Don't trust this person. And then, but, and, but the person is saying, you can trust me. You can mm -hmm. trust me. You can trust, you know, so it creates this. And I think in the folks that I work with who are in, uh, in that kind of corporate corporate environment, they have to, um, play the game, um, uh, you know, uh, yeah, it is. It is. It's like a basketball or football. Everyone, all the games have rules. And if you're in corporate America, there's rules for that game too. Uh, I used to say, uh, during my, when I worked in the clinics, uh, I would always joke when, when my evaluation came up, I'd say, you know, I had to go practice my I'm listening face. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I wasn't listening. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, that was the game I had to play in a mental health clinic, you know? Uh, and I think Martin, I think this is really important point that when we don't listen, uh, to these, these feelings, then our solutions to these ex these problems are always self-destructive. Always is a strong word, frequently self-destructive. So let's say I'm tired of fatigued. I'm going to have more caffeine mm. or I worked all these hours. I'm going to, I'm going to go out drinking, mm. you know? So we we're seeking relief even with overeating or, uh, you know, shopping online is consuming, consuming to feel better. Uh, so we're seeking like an external solution to an internal problem. So by not listening to the feelings, the things we, we turn to, and this is really, you know, with uh, children, uh, parents who are, say, overindulging of them, uh, and you feel, oh, I'm being a great parent. Look, my kid has the latest gadget. He's got the mm -hmm. right sneakers. I never had, and especially if you were, grew up without having those things as a parent, you may really get a lot of pleasure 
out of indulging your kid. But all these studies have shown that kids that were overindulged develop uh, later on uh, all kinds of problems around addiction and uh, gambling, uh, credit card debt, mm-hmm. um, you know, because they, they uh, were, uh, rather than dealing with maybe the emotional parts of the child, we just rewarded them for good, good, good job, good job here get this. But then behind that good job, there is this kind of yearning or this emptiness. Because you can, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this, Martin, in your work that people can achieve all their goals. I work with a man who sold his company on Wall Street for $25 million. And the following year fell into such a depression that his friends had him on a suicide watch. Mm-hmm. Because if you live with just this one goal your whole life, and that's gone, your other areas of your life are bankrupt. You have nothing to fall back on, you know? So um, it, it's uh, these little choices that we make in terms of dealing with our anxieties or fears or depression is often for me, your unconscious is like a tapping you and saying, hey, pay attention, pay attention. Uh, if we don't do that, that's kind of like a, a, a ship where the compass is, is off a few degrees and you don't realize until hundreds of miles that you've missed an entire continent. Yeah. You know, so these, those little choices every day steer us in a particular direction. We interrupt today's episode to let you know about career therapies, unstuck coaching program. If you're feeling paralyzed by job search procrastination and unsure of what to do next in your career, we're here to help. Each month as a member, you will get access to two one-on-one coaching calls, unlimited virtual chat with your coach via Slack, invitations to bi-weekly group coaching sessions, and lifetime access to our eight-part job search curriculum. Want to take your search to the next level? Head over to careertherapy.com and schedule a free 15-minute consultation to chat with me today and see if coaching is right for you. Now back to our show. There's so much good stuff in what you just said there. And I really appreciate you digging into those details because, you know, I think a lot of times when I am working with people, I think what what makes me sad is people will tell me about their lives and it's so, everything is so, some people have very well balanced lives, but they're comparing themselves to someone who is unbalanced, but really successful in one area. And they almost start to feel bad about what they have achieved. And, you know, I was talking to someone recently and they're trying to start a family and they're doing IVF and they're trying to build their career and they're trying to do all these things. And, you know, the way that they phrased it was, I used to always be the one that was um, commended for being a rock star at work. And I just have to, and the way they phrased it was, I just have to accept that I'm not a rock star right now. And I had to like pause and be like, wait a second, <laughs> just because you're not being called a rock star at work and someone else is right. now someone younger who doesn't have all the responsibilities is getting that moniker, quote unquote, put on them doesn't mean that you're not still a rock star. You're just a rock star who's balancing five different things in your life instead of one thing in your life. And uh, and it was just that moment of like sitting with that for two more seconds and just being like, wait a second. It's not that you're not a rock star. It's that you're a different kind of more balanced rock star and really just hitting on that. And and I, I'd love for us to, as we get to the end here, I know we're, we're going to be running up on time. I'd love to get your thoughts on that that part about trust. So you talked about trust. And I think 
so often when people are experiencing um, uh, identity crises or imposter syndrome, or they're trying to like get along at work and be authentic, but then they're like, well, I'm so authentic, but then they're not authentic. And now it's like, I don't know if I can trust my coworkers or trust my bosses or HR. You know, it's like everyone says, go to HR with your problems, but then it gets used against them at some point. And so mm-hmm. where, when it comes to this idea of trust, I guess I want to bring it back to like healthy, realistic expectations around how do we trust ourselves, listen to that tap on the shoulder, right? How do we learn to better trust ourselves without giving in to the like the destructive thoughts? Because you could trust yourself that you want a glass of wine at the end of the day, but maybe that's not the best thing, right? So how can mm-hmm. we build that sense of trust with ourselves and then probably starts with us and then it expands to others, right? How can we then take that trust and, and I mean, people always say trust is earned, right? But <laughs> it's, it's tough. It's like you want to give it too freely or not freely enough. So I, I know this is very ambiguous as we get into the end here, but what are your thoughts on trust and how to develop um, healthy relationships and trust with ourselves and our work? Yeah, I, I think what you said, you nailed it right in your question that, you know, you have to trust yourself first, you know, uh, meaning your intuition, your, you know, your gut sometimes that great book was out. Is it outliers? One of those, uh, Gladwell books talks mm-hmm. about that. Um, and, uh, that great Emerson quote that, uh, in every, in every work of genius, we discover our own rejected thoughts, <laughs> you know, that we, we, we have these thoughts or these associations or feelings that we automatically push away. I can't tell you how much, oh boy, when I was starting out as a therapist, oh man, I trusted everyone, you know, we're all on the same team here. And I can't tell you if people didn't pay their bills or left with a big balance or flat out lied to me. Um, and it took me a long time uh, to mature my view of people that my father used to say, you can make an honest man a thief <laughs> uh, by not uh, holding them accountable. So by it spent, you know, a child who trusts everyone is, is kind of exciting. That's kind of like fun, but this is also a child that gets in the car with a stranger or, or, you know, <laughs> goes into situations with people that are dangerous and doesn't realize it. So um, the trusting aspect um Again, I keep coming back to this core self, this core identity. Uh, I trust most people very implicitly. They come into my office. I trust they're there to do good, to work. And but I also don't give them a blank check of trust. You know, uh, I may say, "How are you going to pay for the session today? How would you like to pay today?" Instead of like, "Oh, I'll send you a bill." And I mean, no, you know. Uh, so trust without boundaries is enabling. Trust without uh, asserting, uh, without structure, puts you in danger. You know. So I find with relationships, I like to look at people as the architect of their relationships, um, where you can affect change in a relationship without it waiting for something to happen. You know, during a 
just before the pandemic, my, uh, I was in an office for 23 years, all therapists in this building, it's a classic New York situation. And they, they went bankrupt and we were out. We were like refugees on the down in Greenwich Village. All these analysts walking around and have been in their office for 40 years. Like, oh, there's a tree. Uh, but um, <laughs> I got this. So I got this. Uh, I went to one of those like workspaces out of desperation. And my assistant came with me and uh, everything was fancy and nice and shiny. And I thought, and but no one was talking to each other. Everyone had their earbuds in. So they'd be in the common space and you'd be, hey, good morning. And then they'd leave and like, I, oh, they can't hear me. So I remember my assistant and I, she's a, been with, she was with me about 15 years. We were like, these people are strange. What? This is weird. What's with this generation? And I, I didn't like that. Anytime I get into this kind of back in the day or oh, that, I almost cursed that, that <laughs> those lies, <laughs> oh, those lies. I don't like myself. I don't want to be that guy. So I said to my, uh, oh, oh, I think I'll tell you this, the Christmas party this is my favorite story. They put up a flyer, come to the Christmas party. Great. And I said to my assistant, uh, her name is Burnett. I miss her. She retired. I said, Burnett, they're having a Christmas party. We'll finally get to meet people. You know, this office is like a hundred offices here on one floor. And she said, yeah, okay, I'll come. <laughs> we go to the Christmas party. Oh no. And, and the food is gone. Well, and some of the food is there, but wh where is everyone? So I, I start to wander around the, the, the uh, I almost said clinic, but uh, the offices, everyone took their food back to their desk. Mm -hmm. Everyone was sitting in front of their computer with their earbuds and eating their food. That was the Christmas party. So I started this thing. I said to Burnett, we're, this, we're going to call this the good morning project. We're just going to say, we're going to just, we're just going to hit them with the dart of good morning. Every, and gradually I'd say, good morning. I'm sorry. What? I said, good morning. <laughs> oh, hi. Oh, hi. Yeah. Oh, good morning. Oh, take, take them out. And slowly, especially the young people, because I had an office with like a lot of Buddhist things, statues for my group room. I, I have surrounded by that stuff. They started like hanging out in my office. They called it the meditation room of the, of mm. the, of this corporate environment. But I really, I, I had to, I made a choice. I was going to forge these relationships. I was going to fall back on complaint or blame or ageism. Uh, so just, and I started doing it in my neighborhood when I walk my dog, they must think of me as like, oh, there's the bald good morning guy, <laughs> you know, uh, but, but there's, there are a lot of people now that I, I know. So um, in terms of identity, in terms of relationships, what you bring to it is the lion's share of what you get. Mm. If I'm waiting around for someone to trust me or like me or if I want someone to like me, I am engaging in some sort of manipulation to get them to feel a certain way about me. People will pick that up. They will sense something's, something's off here. Uh, so identity, people who have a core identity, what my, one of my mentors would say, a well-analyzed ego, uh, they're not selling anything. They're easy to talk to. People are attracted to them because authenticity feels safe. 
you know, so uh, that's just a, a long winded. I'm very long winded this morning. I'm sorry, but that's just a way of, you know, coming back to our themes of like lifestyle fatigue, identity. Uh, if these leave you, if, if, if what you're working on leads you further away from your core self, you're building a building on a faulty foundation. So goals, dreams, ambitions, I'm all for it. But without balance, whatever you work in a heartbeat, heartbeat, and we've seen this with people who destroy their own lives by with a single phrase these days, because mm-hmm. media is so fast. It can bring down their whole company right. or their whole business. So uh, that only happens if you've created a false self and then you slipped up and let your real feelings through. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's incredible. Me, that's please. incredible. Therapist, no, it, therapist, we, we listen so much that when we get a, get a chance to talk, <laughs> you know, we can't stop. So. It's the best, right? That's, that's, what, that's what a podcast is for. I love it. Um, this is absolutely incredible. I appreciate you sharing all those examples. And, uh, and I think really just, you know, when it comes back to this kind of idea of lifestyle fatigue versus chronic depression, I encourage everyone mm-hmm. to go check out your article um, and take a look at the questionnaire you put on there. You have a great questionnaire called the lifestyle fatigue checklist. So I hope everyone goes and looks at that. We'll put it in the, in the description as well. Um, and I think maybe just like bringing it back around to like one thing that we can all do, uh, what would be like a good starting point outside of that checklist for someone to just be a little bit more reflective this week after they hear this? Uh, I, I always want people to uh, consider all parts of them, their identity. So uh, someone, I may ask like, you're the CEO of this company. Uh, uh, without that, who are you? When you're not a father, who are you? When you're not a father, a spouse, uh, a therapist, who are you? Those who are you parts have to be fed. And for me, uh, you know, mindfulness and uh, creativity uh, are the two uh, greatest tools in our arsenal. Uh, That, you know, when you do something creative, that's not for money. That's not for your career. That feels good. I know a lawyer who's like a killer lawyer and he will tell me joining that jazz band. He has a jazz quartet made me the, a better lawyer, you know, so he's feeding parts of himself. Uh, so I would consider like, if I'm going to take myself, Oh, sorry, decline that. Uh, I would consider if I'm going to say like, okay, I'm a therapist. All right, Sean, what else are you? Oh, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. Uh, am I feeding those parts of myself? I'm a writer. Oh boy. If I don't write on the regular, I get really irritable. So writing for me is a kind of ther- uh, therapy. So whatever you identify as, recognize that everyone has really three to five sources, kinds of identities, and you have to feed them all. You have to feed them all. And interestingly, when you feed them all, they all grow together. So like that man playing jazz on the weekends makes him a clear-headed, more enthusiastic uh, lawyer because he's feeding all parts of himself. If he just studied law all weekend and he didn't do that, he probably, honestly, I don't think he'd be as good. And a lot of, you know, people, people who make these enormous breakthroughs in science 
And uh, we'll all, I remember the hearing stories of like, when did this come to you? And they'll say like, I was on a fishing trip. Mm-hmm. Like, what? That's when the solution to this problem came to you. Uh, I was driving cross country with my wife and I pulled over, I was filling up the, and then it hit me, you know, so he created space. So uh, if you're just like a shark with blood in the water, just pursuing these things, you're not leaving enough space for creativity and for uh, thinking outside of the box. And that only happens when you step out of the box yourself. He didn't come up with that solution. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where serendipity But you have to create the conditions for that. Mm -hmm. You create the conditions for lifestyle fatigue. You create the conditions for all kinds of difficulties, but you can create the conditions for enlightenment, for balance, for groundedness, uh, for all, you know, these are things we have to create. No one's going to give those to you. No one's just like, no one's going to, you know, fill up your bank account. No one's going to fill up your soul. And even if you have these things, uh, you're still in, you know, you still, you have to do it yourself. My wife, and I think- my wife and I, you know, you know, we're together 30, uh, 27 years. Well, I hope you didn't hear that. Um, <laughs> 27 years. Uh, but our ha- we feed each other's happiness, but our happiness is not based exclusively right. on our relationship. And that would be like your happiness being exclusively on your career, exclusively on your children. No, three to five parts of your identity all need to be fed equally. And then they move forward together. I absolutely love it. I think it's a perfect spot for us to end today. Um, If folks are interested in finding out more about your work and your writing, where can they find you? Yeah, you can just go to my website, seangrover.com. There's, uh, I'm not really great at this social media thing. I'm a bit of a boomer, uh, but I'm sure if you search me, um, a whole lot of stuff is going to pop up. Uh, and if you want to reach out to me, just, you know, hit the contact button in my website and, uh, that's about it. Just like you, Martin, that's how you found me, right? Exactly. came across your article on LinkedIn and had to reach out. Thank you so much for joining Oh, it was on us. LinkedIn. Wow. I think okay. so. Maybe, maybe I was on Psychology Today on its own. Who knows? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so many different sources at this point. Well, Martin, you know, you're a great, you're a great listener. Your questions are really good. I think whoever your therapist was, my hat, my hat off to them. <laughs> well, thank you very you much. Did a good job. And I appreciate you being here today and sharing these incredible thoughts. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't say thank you enough. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your okay. week in the holidays. Take care. You Bye. too. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you found this conversation to be helpful, please like and subscribe wherever you are listening. We also appreciate it if you take the time to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us spread the word and get these ideas out to more job seekers looking to build their careers and improve their lives just like you. If you'd like to learn more about career therapy and see our different coaching options, you can head over to careertherapy.com to learn more. Thank you again for stopping by. We wish you all the best in the future of your career. Have a good one.